Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Welcome back, everybody. We ended last episode with the case of Planned Parenthood versus the governor of Pennsylvania, Bob Casey, in 1992. That case was a Pyrrhic victory for the state of Pennsylvania and for its anti-abortion regulations. On the one hand, the Supreme Court upheld most of the regulations in place in Pennsylvania. On the other hand, the court reaffirmed what it called the central holding of Roe v. Wade, although now the regulatory framework was changed from Roe's original trimester framework to a framework that emphasized undue burdens on a woman's right to choose abortion. That right, the court said, was part of the substantive liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. And the emphasis was not so much anymore on the right to privacy or on the shadows or penumbras cast by the Bill of Rights, as it had been in Griswold v. Connecticut, the case about Connecticut's anti-contraception statute in 1965. In Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the emphasis was on 14th Amendment liberty. There's one paragraph from that decision that's particularly important for understanding the interpretive debates on the court in the 30 years or so since Casey. The plurality opinion written by O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter said this, Our law affords constitutional protection to personal decisions relating to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child-rearing, and education. Our cases recognize the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwanted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Our precedents have respected the private realm of family life which the state cannot enter. These matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime Choices central to personal dignity and autonomy are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. Justice Antonin Scalia in dissent took issue with such an expansive interpretation of 14th Amendment liberty. His view was succinctly summarized by two points that he made. One, the Constitution says absolutely nothing about abortion. And two, the longstanding traditions of American society have permitted abortion to be legally proscribed. That's at least according to Scalia. And both of these point to aspects of an ongoing debate in constitutional law. Is it appropriate or legitimate for judges to protect rights that are not mentioned in any explicit way in the Constitution? And what role should history and tradition play in guiding judicial interpretation? Now, keep those questions in mind today as we connect Planned Parenthood versus Casey with the court's landmark decisions about sexual autonomy and same-sex marriage in Lawrence versus Texas, U.S. versus Windsor and Obergefell versus Hodges. But first on the question of history and tradition, consider this background. When Griswold v. Connecticut was decided in 1965, the literal dictionary definition of marriage from Black's Law Dictionary was this, the civil status, condition, or relation of one man and one woman united in law for life, for the discharge to each other and the community of the duties legally incumbent on those 
whose association is founded on the distinction of sex. The oft-stated reason why the law of every U.S. state either presumed or explicitly affirmed that marriage entailed the sexual union of a man and a woman is because marriage was an institution oriented toward procreation and the rearing of children and a family headed by a mother and a father. And then other ideal norms surrounding marriage made sense in light of that public purpose. The law presumed that the marital union would be sexually consummated, and that it would be permanent and be sexually exclusive, making it more likely for children to live with both a mother and a father. So it was illegal to have sex outside of marriage. And with apologies for being so graphic here, it was also illegal to engage in oral or anal sex, what the law called and still calls sodomy. It was also in some states illegal to marry someone of a different race. Those laws against interracial marriage were struck down in a case called Loving v. Virginia in 1967. The court held that there was a constitutional right to marry that could not be denied based on race. In his opinion for a unanimous court, Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, quote, There could be no doubt that restricting the freedom to marry solely because of racial classifications violates the central meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. And also, he said, deprives the lovings of liberty without due process of law in violation of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Chief Justice Warren then described the freedom to marry as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. The freedom to marry here meant the freedom to marry irrespective of one's race or the race of one's spouse, precisely because race was irrelevant to the purpose and the definition of marriage. The 14th Amendment, Warren concluded, requires that the freedom of choice to marry not be restricted by invidious racial discriminations. Three years after loving, Jack Baker and Michael McConnell then went to the Hennepin County District Court in Minnesota to request a license legally recognizing their relationship as a marriage under the laws of Minnesota. The clerk denied the request on the sole ground that they were both male, therefore ineligible to marry each other under state law. Baker and McConnell sued, and the Minnesota Supreme Court soon considered a novel legal argument that denying the freedom to marry someone of the same sex was tantamount to denying the freedom to marry someone of a different race. Race and sex distinctions in marriage were alike invidious and unjust, they argued. Appealing to Loving, they compared the then-universally accepted sex-based aspect of marriage law to the long-standing state anti-miscegenation statutes, those statutes against interracial marriage prompting the Minnesota Supreme Court to respond in its opinion that in a common sense and in a constitutional sense, there's a clear distinction between a marital restriction based merely upon race and one based upon the fundamental difference in sex. The same court that decided loving then dismissed Baker's and McConnell's appeal for want of a substantial federal question, saying there's just nothing about the U.S. Constitution that speaks to this issue. In their jurisdictional statement for the Supreme Court, Baker and McConnell had contended that, quote, because of abiding prejudice, appellants are being deprived of a basic right, the right to marry. Those who had refused to grant the requested marriage license they claimed engaged in arbitrary and invidious discriminatory conduct. The state of Minnesota, in structuring its marriage laws, had been arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable, they said. It lacked any rational basis for denying the freedom to marry someone of the same sex. Baker's and McConnell's arguments here all hit categories and phrases from the relevant mid-century 14th Amendment constitutional case law, but without any success. When the issue came back to the Supreme Court almost a half-century later, in Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court took a much different approach and held that the 14th Amendment protects the right or freedom to enter into a marriage with someone of the same sex. 
And Black's Law Dictionary today defines marriage as the legal union of a couple as spouses. What happened in between? A very short version of the story is that cultural norms around marriage and sexuality changed dramatically in the second half of the 20th century. Divorce became easier and more prevalent. More people lived together and raised children together without being married. Contraception seemed to lessen the stakes of sex outside of marriage. And our culture generally became more accepting of romantic or sexual same-sex relationships. And so by the time you get to the case of Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, very few people thought the long-standing Texas law criminalizing gay sex made sense. The case began when John Lawrence and Tyron Gardner were charged with a misdemeanor under the Texas anti-sodomy statute. There was a third man with them that evening who, upset at the flirtation he observed between Lawrence and Garner, called in a false complaint to the local police saying that Garner was inside going crazy with a gun. Police came and entered the home only to find Lawrence and Garner having sex. No weapons, no violence, and a false complaint to start it all. But the deputies nonetheless charged them with a misdemeanor offense under state law. And the case brought up a constitutional question. Under those precedents about privacy and liberty, and after all the cultural changes in the United States, could Texas's statute stand constitutional scrutiny? And if not, why not? According to the court, no, the Texas law couldn't stand. And the reason why, according to the majority opinion written by Justice Kennedy, is that the Texas statute deprived Lawrence and Garner of their liberty without due process of law under the 14th Amendment. It was, in other words, a substantive due process case, and Kennedy connected the precedents here, beginning with Griswold and extending through Planned Parenthood versus Casey, to the line from the plurality opinion in Casey that he helped to author that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state, Kennedy said. Then after quoting from Casey, the court immediately concluded, persons in a homosexual relationship may seek autonomy for these purposes just as heterosexual persons do. And the state law was overturned. But it brought up other questions. Specifically, what about same-sex marriage? Kennedy, in his opinion, said only this. This case does not involve whether government must give formal recognition to any relationship that homosexual persons seek to enter, as he wrote. The question of marriage would wait for another day. But in dissent, Justice Scalia pointed to how he thought that would likely be resolved. Speaking directly to the line that this case does not involve whether the government must give formal recognition to any relationship that homosexual persons seek to enter, Justice Scalia wrote bluntly, do not believe it. Today's opinion dismantles the structure of constitutional law that has permitted a distinction to be made between heterosexual and homosexual unions, Scalia said, insofar as formal recognition in marriage is concerned. This is how Scalia put it when he took the opportunity during the opinion announcement to summarize his dissent. Social perceptions of sexual and other morality change over time, and every group has the right to persuade its fellow citizens that its view of such matters is best. That homosexuals have achieved some success in that enterprise is attested to by the fact that Texas is one of the few remaining states that criminalize consensual homosexual acts. But persuading one's fellow citizens is one thing, and imposing one's views in absence of democratic majority will is something else. What Texas has chosen to do is well within the range of traditional democratic action, 
and its hand should not be stayed through the invention of a brand-new constitutional right by a court that is impatient of democratic change. It is indeed true, as the Court's opinion says, that, quote, later generations can see that laws once thought necessary and proper in fact serve only to oppress. And when that happens, later generations can repeal those laws. But it is the premise of our system that those judgments are to be made by the people and not imposed by a governing caste that knows best. One of the benefits of leaving regulation of this matter to the people rather than to the courts is that the people, unlike judges, need not carry things to their logical conclusion. The people may feel, for example, that their disapproval of homosexual conduct is strong enough to disallow homosexual marriage, but not strong enough to criminalize private homosexual acts, and they can legislate accordingly. The court today pretends that it possesses a similar freedom of action, so that we need not fear judicial imposition of homosexual marriage, as has recently occurred in Canada. At the end of its opinion, the court says that the present case, quote, does not involve whether the government must give formal recognition to any relationship that homosexual persons may seek to enter, close quote. Do not believe it. Today's opinion dismantles the structure of constitutional law that has permitted a distinction to be made between heterosexual and homosexual unions. That was meant by Scalia to be a warning, but over the next decade, many others took it as a roadmap to legally challenge state marriage laws that persisted in defining marriage as a union of a man and a woman. The first major victory at the Supreme Court in this regard was U.S. v. Windsor in 2013, followed shortly after with Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015. Justice Kennedy wrote both decisions, and Justice Scalia dissented vigorously from both. Those decisions dealt with two different aspects of U.S. constitutional and statutory law. The statute in question was the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, a federal law passed overwhelmingly by Congress and signed into law by President Clinton in 1996. Section 2 of DOMA said that no state would be required to recognize the marriage of two people of the same sex who were legally married in some other jurisdiction. So if you leave the state and go somewhere to get married to someone of the same sex and then you return, there's no obligation for your state to recognize that marriage. Section 3 of DOMA said that for the purpose of federal law, the word marriage means a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. The case of U.S. versus Windsor had to do with Section 3 of DOMA about federal law. Two women, Edith Windsor and Thay Spire, had been married in Canada but resided in New York, and New York law at the time recognized them as married. When Spire died in 2009, she then left her estate to Windsor, and under federal law, remember Section 3 of DOMA, they were not married. And so Windsor had to pay an estate tax that a surviving spouse wouldn't have to pay under federal tax law. The Supreme Court in this case says, no, you can't do that. Marriage is a state-level institution. The federal government has to respect the determinations of the states about whether or not someone is married for the purpose of federal law, like paying your taxes. DOMA, because of its reach and extent, Kennedy wrote for the court, departs from the history and tradition of reliance on state law to define marriage. 
Not only that, but Section 3 of DOMA violated the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Remember, this is a federal law, so the 14th Amendment doesn't come into play yet. But there is, the court says, a kind of injury and indignity of having your state-recognized marriage denied by the federal government, and that amounts to a deprivation of liberty under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. And that's where Windsor ends, with a declaration that Section 3 of DOMA is unconstitutional. But no decision about Section 2 or any discussion about whether every state must now recognize same-sex marriages. And in dissent, Justice Scalia speculated that the court had, quote, left the second state law shoe to be dropped later, maybe next term. It wasn't the next term, but the term after when the court took the case of Obergefell versus Hodges. And that's when the court addressed Section 2 of DOMA. The challenge came from Jim Obergefell, who had married John Arthur under the laws of Maryland and then moved to Ohio. Ohio law didn't recognize their marriage, which meant that Obergefell would not be listed as the surviving spouse on the death certificate for Arthur, who was terminally ill and actually died during litigation before the Supreme Court had a chance to hear the case. And in that decision in Obergefell, the Supreme Court held that the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause protects a liberty interest that includes the right to marry, and the right to marry includes the right to marry someone of the same sex. Here's how Kennedy described the decision. The court's case is touching upon the right to marry, as well as its cases addressing the legal treatment of gays and lesbians, have long emphasized the relation between liberty and equality. The court now holds that same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry in all states. No longer may this liberty be denied to them. The challenge laws excluding same-sex couples from marriage cannot stand under the Constitution. And to this, Justice Roberts in dissent took issue with the decision from the perspective of the institution of the Supreme Court and with the Court's authority. Listen here. These cases are not about whether we think same-sex marriage is a good idea. The petitioners make strong arguments rooted in social policy and considerations of fairness. They have moving personal stories. Stories like theirs have played a major role in persuading voters and legislators in 11 states and the District of Columbia to revise their laws and adopt same-sex marriage. But this is a court, not a legislature. Under the Constitution, we have power to say what the law is, not what it should be. And while the policy arguments for extending marriage to same-sex couples may be compelling, the legal arguments for requiring such an extension are not. Our Constitution does not enact any one theory of marriage. The people of a state are free to expand marriage to include same-sex couples or to retain the historic definition. The majority bases its contrary decision on the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. But allowing unelected judges to strike down democratically enacted laws based on rights that are not actually written in the Constitution raises obvious concerns about the judicial role. That is why our precedents have insisted that judges weighing claims of such implied fundamental rights must exercise caution and restraint, and they must ground such a right firmly in our history and tradition. Note in Roberts's dissent his allusions to Lochner versus New York. In dissent in that case, Justice Holmes had said that the Constitution does not enact any particular economic theory. Roberts says here it doesn't enact any theory of marriage. And then he turns to the guide rails of history and tradition. And we leave here with some questions. What is the basis of our rights? 
What role should the Supreme Court play in protecting those rights? Is the Constitution neutral with respect to economic or social arrangements or theories? Is it ever legitimate for the court to protect unenumerated rights? And if so, how do we know what those rights are? And what role should history and tradition play in all of this? What are the limits of liberty under the 14th Amendment? For that last question, we'll pick up later this week with a few cases that represent the court's effort to limit by tethering to history and tradition the broad understanding of liberty that developed from the court's late 20th century substantive due process jurisprudence. 